STEM Conference presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean, sit down with Associate Professor at Miami Dade College, Dr. Elodie Billionaire, and Assistant Professor at Florida International University, Dr. Monique Ross. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango Dean. Finally, our esteemed guests, Dr. Elodie Billionaire and Dr. Monique Ross. Dr. Billionaire has helped the Miami-Dade College secure millions in federal funding the past three years for STEM and emerging technology education programs with industry partners, as well as a collaborative high-tech learning hub with the aim of providing further opportunities to minoritized and low-income populations to meet the workforce needs. Dr. Ross has 11 years of experience in industry as a software engineer. Her research interests include broadening participation in computing through the exploration of race, gender, and identity in discipline-based education research that garners interest and retains women and minorities in computer-related engineering fields. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Thanks a lot, Brandon. And uh, just want to uh, add my welcome to everyone to this episode of the High Tech Sunday broadcast. Every time we come together, I say that we are going to have one of the most timely discussions that you could imagine. And that is the case this week as well, as we welcome Doctors Billionaire and Ross and focus on the impact of the present pandemic on women in computing education. Before we jump into that important topic, though, let me just check in with our guests. How are you all doing, Doctors Billionaire and Ross? Good morning. Thank you for having us. Good morning. I'm well. Thank you. Great, great. Well, glad to have both of you with us. We were uh, talking earlier about the relativity of temperature. Uh, and some of us who are further north got a little jealous, if not irritated, when uh, our Florida guest told us that they were having a cold snap of uh, mid-70s while we're freezing here in upstate New York in the mid-20s. So there you go. Uh, but one of the things that is for certain is that the topic we're covering today is relevant nationwide and even around the world. We want to find out first a little bit more about our guests how is it that your journey has brought you to this point? And uh, what is it that you would attribute to firing you up and giving you the passion for this mission? Uh, so uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Ross, and then ask you, uh, Dr. Billionaire, to pile on. How did you get started in this field? And when did you know that you wanted to be someone who was pursuing a STEM career? So um, because I study in particular uh, Black and Hispanic women's pathways into computing, I've spent a lot of time sort of being reflective about the things that have contributed to me getting to where I am. And, and I, I can say that um, for sure it started for me in high school. Uh, when I was in high school, my first um, like algebra class that I took, I did I performed pretty well. And I was pre you know feeling pretty good about myself. And it asked my high school 
math instructor at the time, you know, well, what do you do? What kind of career path do you go into when you're good at math? And he said, well, you could be an accountant or an engineer. And I had decided pretty quickly that accounting did not sound nearly as exciting to me as engineering was. Not that I even knew what an engineer was. I just knew it didn't sound, it sounded better than accounting. And um, so I kind of, I kind of attached myself to that particular career path and um, started my trajectory actually at a community college, Harrisburg Area Community College in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in their pre-engineering program. And uh, in the first sort of pre-engineering course, they ask you, what kind of engineer do you want to be? And, you know, like, well, what? And I said, well, yeah, an engineer, right? I just felt like I, at the time, I did not know that there were so many different types of sub-disciplines of engineering at the time. And they said, no, you have to pick one. And they, you know, gave me like a list. And I went to what was at the time the occupational handbook in the library and looked at occupations that paid the most amount of money because that's what I knew I wanted to do. I wanted to make the most amount of money I could make. And the one that was at the top of the list at the time was computer engineering. And what I didn't have, however, was this foresight um, to see, well, what was going to be employing when I graduated, right? So it might have been the number one at the time when I started, but when I was at completion, where were all the jobs going to be? And as it turned out, all the jobs were in software engineering. So when I graduated, um, I packed up and left Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana and took a job at a Department of Defense contractor as a software engineer and did that for a number of years. But while I was there, I noticed patterns of participation, right? You saw when I got there, there was only one other black woman in the 1,200 people that were, I think it was 2,000 people when I, when I first got there that were employed there. Um, there was only one other black woman. There were a handful of other black people there and very few Hispanic folks that were employed um, in that field. And then we would hire some and then in about two years, they'd go away. And a lot of the times they didn't just leave the company or that location, they left engineering altogether. And so there were sort of these seeds being planted over time that prompted me to start thinking about, well, why? What, why are there not many people that look like me in this field? The ones that do come, how come they leave? And sort of, um, I'll say serendipitously, I had been talking to a friend who said, hey, Purdue University is going to be launching this engineering education program, a PhD program, you should check it out. And at the time, I hadn't, I hadn't even gotten my master's degree. I had no desire whatsoever to get a PhD. But I, they said, but it's free. They're paying people to come. Like, they're going to give you money to come and just hear their spiel. And so I did. I went to West Lafayette, Indiana, and I sat through their um, presentation and realized in that moment that there were people who were trying to answer the kinds of questions that I had been grappling about these participation patterns in engineering. And that even better than that, I could go back and get my PhD for free and be paid to answer the questions that had sort of been um, sitting on my spirit. And so those that's kind of how I ended up in the space. You know, I, I then made my, um, I didn't go directly into the PhD program. I went back to work. I worked for a little while. I went and got my master's degree and worked a little bit more. And then I went back and got my PhD. So there was sort of this oscillation that went on. But in the end, it, this is where I landed. And I have to tell you that, that, that just seeing those, those patterns over time were the things that really sort of inspired me to go through this path. Thank you. How about you, Dr. Billionaire? How was your journey, if you will? Sure. So uh, in my case, when I reflect back on my life and looking at the first part of my life, the first 19 years, I was raised uh, in Paris, France. Um, and so the system is a little bit different. Uh, even though I did not think about STEM whatsoever, um, in high school, which is kind of similar, that's what you have in the United States with the AP classes in 
Instead, in our case, it's forced upon us. So we have to specialize in high school the last two years. And you have to decide if you want to do literature, social sciences, or STEM. And in my case, I was not good um, in social sciences, especially in history. So that was a no. And in literature, I was good at reading and all that kind of things, but I didn't see myself going into languages. And so STEM was the only way. And I was good. I'm not going to say I was good because I was not an A student. I was more like a B, C student. And uh, I was good in math. That's, I know that, right? Um, and therefore, I decided to, well, I didn't decide. I was moved into the STEM uh, concentration in high school with the concentration in math. Um, after high school, I didn't know what to do. So therefore, I decided to do um, what we call here community college. Instead, that in our case is in high school, community college, like the AAS is actually hosted in the high school. Um, and therefore, I decided to uh, specialize in accounting slash networking. Um, again, because I was good in math and I didn't know what to do. And that was one of the booming area back in my days, that uh, specific degree. And when I got into that degree, that two-year degree, um, I learned how to program. Um, and I thought it was cool uh, for some reason. Um, and then I had two mentors, um, African-American men, um, that I met during that process when I was doing my internship, which was required at the time. I had to do internship the first year and the second year. And they all told me that I should further my education and move into uh, pursue computer science, which I thought that, um, well, I'm not sure, but they told me you can do it based on um, what they observe when I was interning with them. And so my second part of my life, um, I moved to the United States uh, with, my, um, with my father. And uh, I decided to major in undergrad um, in Montana, right? Um, in math at first. And then one of my friends invited me to, um, I'm not saying inviting because she asked me to join her to take an elective class in computer science because she was a computer science major. And I was like, why not? I mean, I don't have anything else to do. And uh, I decided to take that Java course and I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was cool to apply those math knowledge and concepts into programming and looking at the logic and be able to solve problems, right? And build stuff, right? And uh, I decided to pursue and decide to do a combined math computer science degree at that point. And then I decided to apply to um, a, ma a master program, uh, even though, and the reason for that is because I didn't know what to do. I have to be honest. I didn't know where to work, where to start from, and I decided, well, why not stay in school? Um, so then I can further learn uh, about the field. So I applied for a master's program at Arizona State University. And um, I was asked if I wanted to pursue a PhD. I didn't know what was a PhD, but I know that uh, they were gonna give me a full ride. So I was like, why not? Uh, I have no plan and I don't know what to do. And so I actually learned when I was doing my graduate study, that's where I actually figured out that uh, I love computer science. Um, and being able to be part of a research team, um, working with faculty, the mentorship, and going to conferences, meet other people in my field, and learning about all the different projects that people are working on in computer science, trying to solve problems, create, build, all those kind of things that we learn as a STEM major that really um, brought the motivation to pursue. And so um, I earned my PhD. I was actually the first black person getting a PhD from Arizona State University, which was quite interesting knowing that um, the whole diversity initiative and that was the first one. I, it was a surprise actually. 
and then I went and moved to uh, California where I work. I mean, I worked the whole time, but I got my full-time job as a software engineer uh, in California, San Francisco, and then I became a um, quality assurance manager. And then now I'm in Miami as a faculty. So I kind of moved all over the place in the United States, but still staying in the STEM field. Thank you both for, for sharing a little bit about your journeys. And it's really interesting and I think instructive for us to note that neither of you actually had it like etched in your brains uh, as, as young people. I know this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I think that sometimes students get a little stressed out thinking that I need to know like from kindergarten that I am destined to be uh, this scientist, this engineer, this political scientist. Uh, but you all said, uh, you know, engineer. <laughs> uh, not, not aware that there's, you know, 10 uh, engineering disciplines maybe. But, uh, uh, but you, and then I like what you said, Dr. Ross, you said that there was some oscillating. And so sometimes we, again, get a little uncomfortable when our trajectory isn't like this uh, straight line. Um, but uh, it, every experience that we have, uh, Dr. Billionaire, uh, brings us to where we are right now. Uh, so before we jump into uh, what I believe is, is your passions, um, let's talk about what is it that has caused the two of you uh, to actually have more than a passing interest in this whole topic of women in computing education? Where does that come from? And one of the things that I really enjoy learning about on High Tech Sunday is how people have had that experience connected to their own spirituality. So the passion that you have that really drives you to do what you do, how has that been impacted by your spirit, spirituality? And what would you say, if you had a headline, what would you say your passion actually is? I'll start with you, Dr. Ross. I'll give the caveat that actually when, when we first met with the, the crew to talk about this particular um, podcast and they mentioned spirituality, you know, after we got off that call, I, I had told my husband about it. He said, well, did, did you tell me you were Catholic and that, that that's not really what you all do? And I had to laugh. First, I was offended. And then I had to laugh about it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I had to really be thoughtful about um, how spirituality may or may not have played a role in, in my occupational pursuits or even getting to where I am now. And, and the, the best um, word I could come up with was, was altruism, this sort of need to give back. And it was seated in the fact that, um, when, again, when I'm being very deliberately thoughtful and reflective about it, you know, all through my trajectory, there were obstacles and barriers along the way. But with each one of those pushes to push me out, there was an opposite and equal force, right? So um, when I first started in that pre-engineering program, my advisor at the time, you know, they gave you that Myers-Briggs test that took, measured your personality and what kinds of occupations you should pursue. You know, based on my Myers-Briggs test and the fact that I had tested in college algebra, which was well below the math threshold for engineering, those two data points together, he had decided I wasn't a good fit for engineering. And so he had called me into his office and had a meeting with me about how I needed to consider a different, you know, occupational pathway. And I say with each one, there was an equal and opposite force because, you know, after that meeting, yeah, I could have certainly thrown in the towel for STEM and said, this is really not the thing for me. But instead, you know, I sought out somebody, there was a, 
a woman in the math department who I went to and talked to about that conversation I had. And she said, I could advise you, you know, I can sign off on all your coursework for you. If this is really what you want to do, I'll support you in that. And similar things continued to happen when I got to the, when I was looking for a four-year school to transfer to, you know, there were a lot of sort of rejections along the way. So I'll also try to normalize rejection in the course of this podcast today, because I experienced a lot of it along the way, but tried not to let it get in my way. But, you know, there were a lot of folks that were like, okay, you know, maybe, you know, based on your trajectory of starting in the math or having acquired so many, you know, credits at the community college, you know, it wasn't a good fit. And I had a, a gentleman um, from Elizabethtown College who actively sought me out and recruited me to come to that institution and, and continued to sort of move barriers out of the way for me. But like I said, there was always sort of this, this tension. And so to me, getting to where I am, I needed those equal and opposite forces, right? And so I see sort of my role in unpacking these experiences of Black and Hispanic women in tech as trying to plant seeds for those people who give the, the positive feedback or, or remove those barriers for those folks along the way, or when they are told no, tells that, you know, tells them yes, or at least maybe, right, and sort of removes that no. So, so when I think about spirituality, it wasn't a calling so much as it was a, a, a burning desire or need to be that equal and opposite force for those who have, may have been told no, or they couldn't do it, or they weren't ready, or they weren't prepared, or they didn't look the right way, or they didn't do all the right things, or they didn't come the straight um, path to STEM, that I would be that person. And, and that's sort of the motivation behind the work. Wow, very good. So the headlines I took away from that, you said, and we'll talk about this later, possibly, um, you had to normalize rejection. <laughs> that is a hugely provocative topic. And then you, you said, it, maybe not a calling, but a burning desire. Dr. Ross, I think that's a calling. Um, but Dr. Billionaire, can you pile on with the same question? Sure. So I think there's a misconception conception that you have to be smart to be in STEM. I mean, every time I say I have a PhD in computer, oh, you must be smart. And although I do appreciate that, uh, <laughs> that compliment, but it is not the case. I was not an A student. I want to say that uh, persistence, resilience is what brought me here as a PhD in STEM, right? And so it's not about getting those A grades. It's really uh, be able to um, be around people that um, mentor you, help you to network uh, in your field. And so in my case, uh, as I mentioned, I, was, I didn't think about STEM at any given point. Um, I had people who actually observed me and told me that uh, I would be a good candidate in STEM per se and pushed me into that direction. I had no desire to be in STEM. And again, actually I had no desire to be anything. I just wanted to make money, <laughs> right? And so um, be able to uh, have those individual that recognize your ability. And even as Dr. Ross mentioned, sometimes people would deny that and maybe uh, have some misconception about what you can do. But be able to have some of those individual and they don't have to be look like you, but most of them were uh, black male in my case, who actually pushed me in that direction and told me, you can do that. Um, you have the strength to do that. And so again, um, you don't have to be smart to get in STEM. Uh, and some of the things I did acquire, because I went, I was usually the only black uh, girl in my class, so maybe one out of two, uh, is being able to network. So for example, when I went to grad school, again, I was I still didn't know what, what I wanted to do. However, um, I was an A-gap scholar. 
And through that scholarship program, I was able to attend conferences where people look like me, like Hispanic, Black uh, students, I mean, students from entrepreneurial group were in STEM. And that's how the big picture came. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not the only one. There's other individuals across the country who actually persist and continue that field and be able to network with them. I had a long-term relationship with many of them and we help each other. That network is very important for us to sustain because you have a lot of people that actually start the STEM field but do not finish because they are isolated. They feel like they're alone by themselves and no support. And so that support has been very helpful for me to actually be where I'm at today. Again, there's a lot of, oh, go ahead, please. I forgot to touch on the spirituality, sorry. <laughs> so all this thing actually makes sense. So again, I'm also a Catholic. Um, I was raised Catholic. Um, and so again, the whole concept is a lifestyle. I, that's how I see it. So giving back is a lifestyle uh, from where we're coming from. And so it's natural for us to want to help and assist and give back to the next generation of whoever's coming behind us. And I can see that because when I reflect back on all the different um, opportunity that I try to pursue, they align with that philosophy of giving back and helping each other out. And so um, with that concept, I always think about something that I even tell my students. Uh, in the Bible, uh, I think it's First Corinthians um, 9, there's something about um, running your race, right? So everybody's running the race, but there's only one person who gets the prize, right? And I tell my student, in order for you to be able to participate, you have to take opportunities, right? If you don't even try to uh, get the opportunity, then you're never going to win, right? And so that's the concept of always trying. When somebody put an opportunity in front of me, I always apply, no matter what. I may not win, but at least I give my best efforts to um, get that specific opportunity. It could be a scholarship, a fellowship. It could be an internship. It could be just an opportunity for me to get into STEM, right? And that's what I'm going back to it. I was not supposed to be a STEM major, but because people told me, well, that could be a path for you. And I decided to actually um, follow the advice that that's how um, I was able to get into STEM. Very good. And again, it's just really fascinating to me how there are so many similarities between uh, the things that inform your passion, the altruistic uh, bent, if you will, um, uh, in both of your cases. And it, and it was born out of your um, experience as uh, being Catholic. Uh, and so thankfully, uh, you've come to a place as educators where you're making a difference uh, in that regard. So let's just jump right into uh, the women in computing education, and in particular, education and how it's been impacted by the pandemic. Uh, certainly, there have been a lot of changes that education and educators have had to manage. So uh, tell us about how uh, COVID-19 has changed the education landscape in general and how, if at all, it has impacted women in computing education in particular. You want to start us off, Dr. Ross? Sure. Um, when, when COVID hit back in, in March, um, it was fortunate Dr. Billionaire and I had, had already been working on some projects and so we had already been in communication. So it was interesting to have conversations during that time period about 
the differing experiences of how COVID sort of unraveled for us at our respective institutions. And at Florida International University, um, I mean, they had been sort of warning us that, hey, we don't know what's what's coming down the pipeline. You should probably be thinking about um, what you're going to do with your courses, you know, if and when we should have to decide to shut down the institution. And and we got sort of that warning and then we didn't hear anything until it was a Thursday afternoon that I had received a text message from a friend that lives in West Palm Beach who's not affiliated with Florida International University who sent me a message and said, hey, I hear your university shutting down tomorrow. And I was like, what? Hey, wait, I haven't gotten any emails, any, any, anything. Maybe it's just chatter. And then, you know, uh, a couple hours later, the institution said, hey, the governor of Florida decided we're all shutting down tomorrow. So you need to be able to move to an online platform by tomorrow. And so wow. we were given, you know, very little notice um, or notification in which we were all scrambling to like tell our students, hey, you know, we're going to figure this out. You know, hopefully everything will be squared away, you know, for the beginning of the next week. And so it was a bit chaotic. And then simultaneously, you know, the school districts shut down that Friday. So I got the university shut down Thursday, the school shut down on Friday. And all of a sudden it was trying to figure out what, you know, how you were going to manage your children and, and the school and the online learning. And it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, and I'll, I'll let Elodie speak a little bit to, to MDC's transition. I think they handled it a little bit better than we did. Actually not. <laughs> <laughs> So in our case, it was uh, quite similar, but in different ways. So in my case, um, kind of talking with some of my colleagues in New York, uh, actually Syracuse University, they actually already moved to online in February. They had a smooth process that would prepare, bring proactive. And in my case, I even reached out to my school, asking them, do we have anything in place if we have to uh, move online? And I was told that, uh, well, thank you for your email, but we'll, we're waiting to hear back from the state uh, <laughs> leaders. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So we're being passive. And then as Dr. Ross mentioned, uh, on Thursday, um, we got an email saying that um, in our case that we shut down the campus uh, and then we're taking two weeks off. So we didn't move online right away like FIU. We actually closed completely all the classes, the campuses for two weeks. Because in our case, our faculty were not prepared to teach online. A lot of faculty do not use uh, any online platform to teach. Um, and so um, they had to be trained uh, during that two weeks break, uh, intensive training, um, and even took a little bit more than two weeks. But within two weeks, we had to reopen online the classes so students could actually complete the classes and graduate because we had a lot of students who had to graduate in spring. And so that two weeks were really, um, important for those faculty. However, I'm from the School of Engineering and Technology. Most of our classes are taught online or blended. So it was a smooth process for the computer science faculty in our case. Um, but for the students, not so much the case because many of them did not have the technology available. So they didn't have, again, we serving in our case, uh, Dr. Ross and myself is really low income population and therefore Many of them do not have a laptop or even devices to actually do their work. They usually come on campus, go to the um, computer lab, do their work, and then they go back and work, right? And so in our case, we had to um, find many <laughs> hundreds of laptops to distribute to our students so they can actually uh, complete the classes online. So we've been fortunate that we had those resources available for our students. Um, so that's been one of the case. The second thing that we have seen um, is that um, when we talk about women in computer science, as Dr. Ross mentioned, even as we move online, um, 
it was not an easy process because many of them are married, have kids, so they had to juggle all those personal um, personal life they have and combine it with um, the education. Uh, so that's been a challenge for many of them, and I heard a lot of feedback from them saying, you know, I have to help my kids with the school work, I have to do my own school work, and also I have to work as well, and still have to do the cooking and all that kind of thing that they have to do, right? And so we had to be flexible. Um, even myself, I had to be flexible as much as I could, still be able to have them meet the requirement to graduate or complete the course. So that's been some of the challenges. Um, some of the things I think that Ross mentioned as well is that uh, even though we move online, one of the positive part of it is that a lot of people who could not take face-to-face uh, -face classes um, or even bloody classes because of, of work, they were able to actually enroll in courses online because then they just have to stay home and it's more flexible schedule for them to take online classes. So we've seen, um, I'm not going to say a, a big increase, but we've seen an increase of women getting into computer science and not just women, actually individual in general to actually take those online classes in those computer science emerging technology courses. So that's been helpful. But again, this involved also the support from the state. Um, with the CARE Act, there was some funding available for the students. And that's been very important because as I see um, the numbers in our field, we have many students, women and men, actually entering the uh, STEM field with that CARE Act uh, funding. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when the money is not there anymore. Are they going to persist? That's really the question. So we'll see that in the next year, if they're actually going to continue and finish the degree when uh, they actually have to pay for the remaining courses. That's such a, a, a critically important um, topic that you just ended there on. Uh, that is something that I know is on the minds of a lot of people uh, who support or actually um, deliver education. You kind of both talked about different approaches to uh, moving uh, to the virtual delivery uh, reality. Uh, and so that kind of uh, is a nice segue into maybe a, a question that could have been considered tangential or even off the radar uh, prior to eight months ago, but it's definitely one that is front and center now. So can you talk about your thoughts um, pertaining to what would have been called a formal learning environment, uh, you know, in the classroom, uh, whether it's a two or four year college versus uh, more informal learning, uh, LinkedIn uh, learning, uh, Udemy, Coursera. Um, give us your thoughts about uh, how that approach, uh, formal and informal, uh, how is it that you are reacting to those options, either of you? Um, I'll jump in real quick. I, so a couple things about that. I mean, I think echoing what Dr. Billionaire said, we have also seen sort of enrollment trends going up, right? Whenever the economy goes down, folks go back to school, right? And and so that has been sort of a positive upswing. And I think also um, the accessibility as not to take away from the challenges associated with it, but the accessibility of being able to get an online degree in computer science or IT or those kinds of things have, have turned out to be pretty... Um, attractive to women who are trying to balance all of these challenges they're going and again I'm not going to say it's easy at all because I, I joke that since the pandemic I'm the lunch lady and the PE instructor and the math teacher and the IT professional right so all, all a lot of folks are juggling all of those different things I do think that um, 
the informal learning setting certainly has its um, benefits and again attractiveness associated with it it's an opportunity to start to to sort of get your feet wet into a profession that has a long standing of being lucrative and always being in demand and i also think that the pandemic also started to highlight jobs that were more conducive to making those transitions and tech you know was at the top of those right a lot of these tech industries are now saying you don't ever have to come back to work right you can always stay home so there is something that is very attractive and people are sort of pivoting and and looking into that the only caveat i'll give is that um, we did a, a, a small study where we did sort of like a web crawl of Indeed in, and organizations like that that, that have um, uh, requisitions or job postings or those kinds of things and tried to look at requirements. And, and it was like less than 2% of the jobs were for those who didn't have a four-year degree in some type of computer science or computing field. So while the informal learning setting is great for things like trying it out. Is this something that I can get into? What are the possibilities? What are the potential? Also for reinforcing. So if you do decide to go into an informal, a formal setting, whether or not that's virtual or online or whatever, um, to complement the types of things that you're doing. And I think it also helps with things like for job preparation. Um, we've, we've seen through, through some prior work that while four-year degrees, even in computing, are great for setting up a good foundation and they're great for putting on your resume to get a job, there's also this additional hurdle of getting through the interview process in tech. And so I think these informal settings are a great complement to, but I don't know that we're at a place yet where companies are waiving sort of that four-year degree. They're still very much emphasizing that, at least in their job description, job descriptions and postings. And I will add to that that um, there's some very good value point in that area. But something that we did see during summer is the disruption with informal learning, where we have Google. Amazon Web Services or even um, Microsoft who are now deciding to take upon themselves to provide micro programs, uh, informal learning, right, online through Coursera or Udemy uh, for hiring. So you don't have a degree, but if you complete that program that they're proposing, whether it's in data science, cloud computing, in six months and you get certified, we will hire you. However, we don't have data if they actually hire in anyone yet, right? But now they're moving forward that's kind of taking the replacement of higher education and taking upon themselves to hire all those individual emerging technologies, especially in data science, cloud computing, cybersecurity, AI. However, when you look at the job description, it still says that you need to have a four-year degree. So which can be misleading for a lot of individual. And again, we'll see a year or two from now if they actually hire any of those individuals who actually complete that six-month informal learning courses that they're providing online, which I think is great, especially if you want to reskill or upskilling. I can understand that. You already have a degree, but you haven't got into those emerging technology that's brand new, and there's only new degrees, right? And you don't want to do a new degree. You already have a degree in STEM, and you just want to add to it. Then I can see that as being a great initiative, right? But if you don't have a degree already, I think it's still going to be hard for you to get those jobs because the job descriptions still say that you need to have a four-year degree in STEM. Uh, another thing that we did see with um, formal informal learning, as Dr. Ross mentioned, it's a great uh, starting point, especially because it's self-paced, uh, flexible. You don't have a deadline that um, at the end of two months you have to complete. You can take your time because you're paying the monthly uh, subscription or maybe it's free depending on which platform that you're using. So you can go on your own pace, uh, self-paced, 
and complete maybe in six months, a year, however you want to do it. But the numbers that show that do show that there's a very low percentage of people who actually complete those online courses. And then also you have to think about it. there's no one who actually can assess if you actually complete your own work because it's easy to just cheat on those things, right? You can copy paste, whatever that is, because the answer are available online if you do a quick Google. So I think it's hard. If I have to hire somebody who did informal learning, then I cannot say that 100% that they actually did the work unless I'm going to test them. And I guess that would be the, the side where you have technical interview where you actually assess them, right? And that would be the part that you can kind of figure out if they actually understand and complete that course that they just did online. Got it. And I think that you've just actually, again, set up uh, the next part of the conversation as you are both really starting to highlight those um, features, let's, let's say, uh, that will ultimately impact not, not only the density of the pipeline, but the quality of the pipeline, the talent pipeline as well. And so I'm going to uh, hand things off to my co-host, Lango Dean, who's going to pursue that part of the conversation. And so Lango, uh, how are you? I'm not doing so good, Dr. Vaughn, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Thank awesome. you for asking. Sure, I know that you said that you were yeah, uh, taking something for your, your cough, so we certainly um, are glad that, that you're with us and hoping that you feel back to 100% real soon. Thank you, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you so much. You're listening to High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, Associate Professor at Miami-Dade College, Dr. Elodie Billionaire, an assistant professor at Florida International University, Dr. Monique Rawls. This week's episode is brought to you by the Bayes STEM Conference. Now, a word from our sponsor. If we're able to save kids act a certain way because of the negative influences in their lives, the role models that they see on the street corner and places like that, if we're willing to buy into negativity, then why can't we buy into positive things? And that's what this conference uh, is all about. And I, I really hate calling it a conference because it isn't, it's a community. We've built over the years a strong community of at least 30,000 active people that we can reach out to any given day. And why do they do this? Because they feel that being part of this community, they are part of something greater and that they're surrounded by people who are like-minded like them. Bayer, becoming everything you are. Again, this week's episode is brought to you by the Bayer STEM Conference. Now, back to the show. Well, great conversation there between uh, you and Dr. Ross and Dr. Billionaire. And before I go on to the question of what young people can do now in this COVID-19 era and in an age of disruption to prepare themselves for a career in computers, I just want to 
recap, um, Dr. Ross used a beautiful term. She said about unpacking experiences, and we do a lot of that on High Tech Sunday. And as you unpack your experiences, Dr. Ross, you talked about liking algebra, liking math, and being good at it, but not knowing knowing you didn't want to do accounting, but not knowing too much about engineering either. And you mentioned somebody pointing you in the direction of reading the occupational handbook, and we had another person on High Tech Sunday a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Pamela McCauley, and she talked about going to the library and, and reading the occupational handbook to find out about the different fields in engineering. So for, for young people out there, it, the occupational handbook hasn't gone out of fashion. It's still very much used. Um, for Dr. Billionaire, I like the things that you talked about, how you moved from how you got into the STEM track, you were good in math, you got into the STEM track, you started community college, you did a bit of programming, did an internship, then you moved to the U.S., you did, did a Java course. But it's the things that you learned that you don't have to be smart. You have to be persistent. You have to be resilient. You have to be around people willing to mentor you. You also have to attend conferences or be part of groups that can sort of encourage you to do more networking. And all of that allows you to get the big picture. So that's where I want you to take off. How do you give that big picture now to young people so that they can prepare themselves for a career in computers in the post-COVID-19 era? Dr. Billionaire. Thank you, Linda uh, um, Dean. So um, that's a good question. And I think we're still trying to figure out how to uh, navigate through the COVID-19. So I don't have uh, a right answer per se. So um, some of the advices I'm giving to my student is that the benefits of COVID-19 is like a lot of those conferences that usually you have to pay big money um, to travel to or even pay for registration. Now they're available online and most of them are actually available for free. So those conferences, whether it's uh, Grace Harper, Tapia, Nesby, um, I don't know, there's many of them, right? Um, you can actually register for free and network and learn about different topics in computer science and engineering. So that's been very helpful for many of my students, even uh, SHIP, which is for Hispanic um, engineer um, professional. All those conferences have been affordable. I don't know how long they're going to be affordable, if they're going to go back to what they used to be after uh, post-COVID-19, whenever that's going to take place. But that's a time for actually being able to be exposed and network at those conferences available online. Another thing that I do recommend to my student is that mentorship is important and they don't have to be STEM uh, individual. Uh, mentorship come in different ways um, and from different individuals. So depending what you're looking for, you can uh, reach out through uh, LinkedIn or even at those conferences, they have those mentorship um, session where you can actually get paired with somebody else or even talk to individual and then you can ask to be mentored. So that's another part. Another way for uh, computer science, uh, what we've seen, especially at MDC, uh, what we do, we do through continuing education. So right now there's a lot of funding being available to the states um, with the CARE Act. Um, and other grants actually, because now everybody wants to, well, not everybody, right? But a lot of organizations want to um, give back and provide funding for students or returning students because a lot of them got laid off from uh, the workforce. So therefore there's a lot of funding available for those individuals who got laid off or had to leave the workforce for personal reason. 
And so that's an opportunity for um, those individual students. I don't like to like student, but learners, right? That's really what, what I want to say because adult learners, right? Um, they can actually enter those uh, different mini degree, which, well, which could be a college credit certificate or even an associate degree and figure out if computer is one of the area. I mean, there's a lot of things about cloud computing. Again, I'm not advertising emerging technology, but a lot of them has to do with emerging technology because that's what the demand is, especially in cybersecurity, cloud computing, data science, AI. There's a lot of those micro degree that you can actually enter right now at a low cost, if not for free. Obviously, it's usually on the continuing education that's means for non-credit. But once you get in a non-credit, you can get credits on the credit side if you decide to pursue a bachelor degree afterwards, right? So you have to, let's say manage, but there's a lot of what, what we're working on with the continuing education, at least at my media college, is once they get any certification or budget that actually validate the knowledge, we, if they decide to continue the bachelor program, for example, then we'll give them credit for those courses. So they don't have to start from zero, right? But I do think going through those uh, free um, programs or even informal learning to get you in the, um, in the in door as an entry um, pathway uh, is helpful. So that's where we will start. So again, conferences, there's many of them. You can go, if you do computer science engineering conferences, you'll get a list of all of them. And I promise you, many of them are free, most of them. And if not, they even offer scholarship for individual layoff or even students. Uh, and then look into those free or uh, entry-level uh, program that can get you started. A lot of them has to do, actually, they also place you in, with internship. So they do those uh, mini program where it's like six, um, 12 weeks or up to three months, depending on uh, which one you select. And they actually help you out to, uh, with employability skills and place you for internship or full-time job at the end. So that could be a way to get you started. That's wonderful. Dr. Ross, entry pathways and getting started. I mean, I think um, Dr. Billionaire hit most of the key things, right? I feel like taking advantage right now of what free opportunities are out there is critical, right? I mean, the flexibility right now that we have of COVID of being at home, gift or curse, right? It's a gift and a curse in that, you know, you have to be able to try to manage that time in, in the absence of structure that you may have had at one point, but there's also an opportunity to there to really leverage the free training, free conferences. I can't um, strengthen or emphasize enough the importance of networking. And right now we have some really unique opportunities to have access to people that maybe we wouldn't have before, right? I think about, um, like all the people that are giving talks virtually now, you know, they're they're open wider now. I mean, I think even university-wide, we used to have all these lecture series and they were always just sort of, they were focused only to the university, but now anybody can come, right? And so there are opportunities to really sort of open your eyes, to even be seen and to be heard and to ask the questions, right? I, I um, Again, back to normalizing rejection and failure, like don't be afraid to ask questions you don't know what you don't know, right? And a lot of the times there was a, a, a great quote that I wish I had had handy, but the, the, the gist of it is, you know, a lot of the times we will avoid asking a question in 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 fear of, of sounding stupid right so you, you 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 limit your knowledge acquisition by not asking those questions and i feel like there are unique opportunities to have access to people to ask those kinds of questions too so i feel like um yeah i mean that that's all i have to add to it and 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 again circling back to the whole like free coursera courses and stuff and the things that aws and google are offering 
to Dr. Billionaire's point, right now we don't know. Right now they're saying we're offering these trainings and, and, and you'll be able to get a job at the end of the pipeline. Like I say, play the odds and try it anyway, right? I mean, you may get a job. But then again, I don't think you do it in lieu of eventually going back to school because that's sort of your security, that education that you get on the end of that. But I feel like, you know, capitalize on those things. That's wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Ross. Um, you, you mentioned something earlier about having an equal and opposite force. Every time you kind of moved in one direction, there was always that opposite and equal force sort of pushing, you know, away from it or towards something else. And after listening to you and Dr. Billionaire talk about all the opportunities that are out there now, the, the free courses online that you can take, uh, six-month training courses to upscale or rescale or even tool yourself for the very first time. You also mentioned the challenges along the way. Dr. Ross, in the beginning, you talked about retention. There were so many black and Hispanic women who were dropping off, you know, the STEM pipeline. So I wondered how you would, what words of encouragement you would give for young people. You also talked about mentors. Like, uh, I think there was a professor who said, I'll be willing to sign off on things for you. Come to me and I'll help guide you through this process. So what words of encouragement do you have for young people at this time and going forward? Dr. Ross? Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, I can't emphasize enough finding your champions and whether or not that's your champions um, in trying to go back to school or taking your training or when you get into the workforce, finding people who will advocate for you, people who, who recognize and acknowledge your talents and subsequently um, support you. And, and I feel like those, those champions were my equal and opposites, right? So whenever somebody said no, there was somebody else that said, hey, let me help you get through this thing or let me help you um, move this forward. So I feel like finding your champions and, and know that they could be anything. Like, so uh, Dr. Billionaire talked about most of her champions were black males. Uh, in my uh, experience, a lot of them were white males, right? And it was hard discerning between those who were supportive in, in the beginning, who was supportive and those who weren't. And, but with time, once you, once, you, once you can identify those people that are in your corner, regularly meeting with them and having conversations, because again, you don't know what you don't know. So many things are discussed sort of um, informally, you know, on the golf course or out for drinks and beers. And if that's not your thing, you lose out on some of those those informal conversations to get that tacit knowledge that people are carrying around. And they're not maliciously keeping it from you. They just don't talk to you about it because you're not talking to them. So identifying who those champions are, that gets back to networking and building relationships. I feel like also, your champions don't necessarily have to be people that are above you who can advocate for you. They can be your peers. You need to have those cheerleaders along the way. I've made it very um, deliberate decisions to keep people in my corner who who challenge me and push me, but who are also there for me to cheer me on, right, when, when things get tough. There's going to be a lot of barriers. There's a lot of rejection and, and failure within computing as a general rule of thumb in tech, right, in engineering, all of those, right? There's always these, you know, you try it, it fails, you try it again, it fails, you try it again. You just have to, getting back to Dr. Billionaire's persistence, that is like a critical, critical piece to engineering and technology. And so you can't fold 
the first and only time somebody says, okay, you didn't do well on an exam or you didn't, you know, meet the expectation. You have to then probe and ask the question, how do I get better? What do I need to do differently? Um, I, I always share my story of getting into graduate school. I didn't get into graduate school the first time I applied. I had, I got a failure notice, right? And I could have, I did, admittedly, I did crawl in my hole for like 48 hours, but then I let that go. And I went back and I said, okay, what can I do to increase my chances next go round? Because I'm not willing to sort of throw in the towel yet. And so I think, and, and that is re-emphasized by those champions and those cheerleaders that you surround yourself along that trajectory. So I think that that's critical. That's wonderful. Dr. Billionaire? Um, Dr. Ross, you got it, right? I totally agree. And um, one of the challenges I had um, at, early, um, at the early stage is how to identify those individuals. Because oftentimes you seek validation from people around you, but it may not be the right people to ask for validation, right? And that's, you'll find a lot of people who tell you, oh, well, you're not good at it, so then change, right? Change your major, do something else, right? That's not the individual you should having this conversation with. That's the individual that you actually should stay away from. <laughs> so um, it's tough love, but again, persistence uh, will take you to the finish line. And oftentimes we don't have that muscle. You have to, um, exercise that muscle of persistence because it's so easy to give up. So easy. I have students who have to take a science class and they get a bad grade and they say, well, that's not for me. I need to change my major. I say, no, it's only one bad grade. <laughs> you still have the rest of the semester to, to do better. So how about we meet with the professor and figure out what can you do more? How can you study? Maybe it's your study habit that don't work well, right? How can you have maybe a study with your peers so you can improve your performance? What kind of other resources that you can have access to for you to uh, learn better, right? So all those things that we don't teach in, in school. We don't teach you how to study. We don't teach you about habits. All those kind of things, you have to be able to acquire that knowledge and figure out how do you learn. Because some people are not good at just listening. They like to write. You have to figure out how you learn, and therefore you can apply that into your classes. But that's something that requires time and for you to actually investigate to figure that out, right? And so as Dr. Ross mentioned, um, mentorship is very important. Um, and then um, I'm not saying it's hard to find mentorship, but as she mentioned, if you're not into those informal sessions, because really those things take place outside of the classroom, usually it's when you go out with your friends, well, with your friends or even individual, like you say, it can be on the golf course, it could be at the restaurant, if you don't partake in those conversations, you are left out. And I had that issue at the beginning. I'm somebody who likes to stay home and just do my own thing, right? So I'm not really a social individual, I have to be honest. But I realized that that was missing out. I had friends go, oh, you know what happened, such and such. I was able to get that internship because I talked with that person and that kind of things. And so I decided to open, to be more open and decide to be more outgoing, kind of forcing myself, I have to be honest and be able, when somebody invite me to go to uh, the house for gathering, even though I like to stay home, I will still go. And then I get so much value out of it with discussing with individual. Sometimes they will point out to different opportunities, whether it's grant, whether it's like, like a networking session or maybe a meeting with somebody else. That's how you get in those conversations. So you have to force yourself, if you're like me, to be more outgoing and actually participate in those uh, informal uh, meetings. Thank you so much, Dr. Billionaire, and thank you too, Dr. Ross. At this point, I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Vaughn to continue this very lively and informative conversation. Dr. Vaughn? 
Uh, thanks a lot, Lango. And again, it, you got it right. It's such an engaging and lively conversation as always. And we never seem to have enough time. Uh, but before we end uh, our time together, uh, I'm going to shift a little bit uh, and maybe ask a little bit of a fun question. Uh, headlines for me, by the way, coming out of that segment, uh, you've got to identify mentors and champions and you've got to know how you learn. Uh, so such critically important reminders. And uh, so thank you for sharing that. You know that uh, semesters are winding down, the year is winding down and uh, people are looking forward to some downtime. So I wanna ask both of you, because you all seem like you are on the go nonstop with the important work that you're doing for your universities and beyond. What do you do, Dr. Ross, for fun? <laughs> There's an assumption there that I am fun. <laughs> uh, I actually, um, my favorite pastime is actually reading. I mean, I, I, I don't, and I don't read before you say, okay, she must be nerding it up, reading some real deep stuff. I don't. I read just like fiction. Right. I spend a lot of time just sort of kind of getting lost in in fiction. And so that that's what I do for fun. OK, so, you know, I got to ask you a follow up then. What what are you looking forward to reading next or what are you reading now? That's pretty cool. Right now I'm reading um, Deacon King Kong. It was a Oprah Winfrey. Favorite book recommendation. So I'm 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 reading that currently and I'm actually looking forward to reading um, Kamala Harris's book and hopefully Obama's book over, over break, which are not fiction, but I feel like it'll still have some entertainment value associated with that I can get on board with. I'm sure it will. The Promised Land, I know that one from yes. President Obama. Yeah. How about you, Dr. Billionaire? Fun stuff. Right, so uh, I don't know if I'm fun, but uh, <laughs> I guess I'll try to make a case for it. Uh, on my spare time, um, I actually run marathon and half marathon. So oh. I actually complete the, I did a half marathon in all the 50 states. I've done the major marathon, Boston, New York, um, Tokyo, uh, Chicago, all this stuff. So I do that. I love to travel. And when I travel, I always look if there's a marathon in that country or that state. And also I do public service. So for example, um, I did a few of them in Uganda um, and Nepal. So I went for a marathon actually. But at the same time, we did, um, we create, um, we built as a group. Obviously, I wasn't the only one, right? Uh, we did like a, a water pipeline in a village in Nepal, which took, I thought I was going to die because it was so, uh, it was amazing, but also so tedious to do that. I mean, labor, <laughs> labor work is hard. I have to be honest. I mean, just think about the whole engineering design of doing the pipeline. Uh, the water pipeline was amazing, but just actually building it and doing it throughout the village, it took like a couple of days, but it was hard. And then in Uganda, I did a marathon as well there, but we expanded the, um, the school because the kids, um, it, they had dorms, right? But the kids, it was like four kids on a little small mattress. I couldn't figure out how that happened, but they make it work, right? And so we help out to expand the school so every kid had their own mattress, the dorms. We expand the dorms as well as some of the activity around the school. So I love to travel. That's one of the things when I can, when I'm on break. That's a nice thing to be a professor. You do have a break. Whereas when you're in industry, you have two weeks of break. And I can, <laughs> right? So I use my break to do stuff, traveling, giving back, um, and uh, running. I think running is really a therapy, um, kind of a meditation way where I'm on my own and thinking about um, my own thought and my 
connection with God throughout that process of maybe three or four hours, depending on even five hours, sometimes depending which marathon I'm doing. So that's the time my meditation part of it. I do love to read as well. Um, I always have a book with me. Uh, I'm open to any book. So it's not like I'm picking a specific book from a list. Um, but I do have an interest in Asian author. Not that I don't have an Asian fetish, but I do like the way they do the storytelling. And so um, Pashinko is one of the last one I read, which was great in terms of the history between uh, Korea and, and uh, Japan back in the days. So that's one of the latest book I read. Very cool. Well, Dr. Elodie Billionaire and Dr. Monique Ross, it has certainly been a pleasure spending this time with you, getting to know you and the work that you are helping to drive. And we really appreciate your passion and uh, hope that you continue to be encouraged on your mission. Uh, they're in uh, cold, cold 70-something Florida. Uh, we look forward to continuing to monitor your progress. Uh, and thanks so much uh, just for being available for this conversation on High Tech Sunday. With that, I'm going to toss it back to Brandon Newby and to, he's going to send us off. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communications Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time.